it's Monday, May 4th, 2020. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 5 of the 5049 Coronacast. How you guys doing? It's May 4th, and today I am 40 years old. I am feeling every single day of it. Do you guys hear that music back there? That is uh, from an unreleased and upcoming Bloodness record. Let's listen to it a little more. Sounds like a lot of fun, right? Uh... Episode 5 of the 5049 Corona Cast. Today, the guest is me. Me, solo on the mics, answering your questions. I put the word out about a week ago, and a lot of good questions came in. So I'm excited to get into it today with you guys. Uh, I'm going to try to get to all of them, and uh, it might be a little bit long today, but I, th- I think we're in for a good one. Today on the show, old man Zimmerman, 40 years old. Before we get into it, uh, there's, you know, I don't know what the fuck is wrong with me. I always forget to plug my own stuff and talk about my own projects, but this past week was pretty big for me. I released a record on Friday. It's a long title. It's called Systema Mundi Totius Volume 1. And this record, I would say more than any record I've ever made, which at this point is like 15 or 16 records just under my own name, gave me the hardest time. I won't get too into it, but it took... Oh, no, I will get into it. I'll get into it later on the show because one or two questions came in about it. But I worked on this thing for three years. Now, that is not to confuse time with effort. Those three years were largely me bumbling around in the dark trying to find a light switch when I didn't even know if a light switch existed. It was one of those things making a record that I didn't know that I didn't know anything about. It is an exercise in madness, but, um, and I'll, and I'll, again, I'll talk about it uh, later in the show, what the music is and, and everything that went into it. But I finally released it this past Friday. Uh, I am really, really proud of it for a variety of reasons. In addition to the music, which I would say, I would say it's definitely the most confusing record I've ever made. I think it's strong. I think it's a really strong record, but it's definitely like maybe the most unusual. (laughs) Um, But beyond that, I would say this record most closely represents an idea that I've been getting at uh, for myself and in in music making and creative practice, which is tapping into a subconscious, interacting with my creative subconscious. And uh, from beginning to end, so the the piece, and again, we'll talk about it later in the show, is written for four clarinets and, and two percussionists. For the recording, it's just me playing all the clarinets, a lot of percussion, and, and Brian Chase playing drums. But with the exception of Brian's contributions to the record, I did every single thing across the board, except for master it. Uh, I played all the instruments, I did the artwork, I did the layout, I mixed it, um... So this is really a reflection of like a pretty long and sometimes terrifying hermit, hermetic practice. Put it out this Friday. If you want to get a physical copy of it, there's one place to do it. That's the 5049 website. Go to the store. Uh, the first 50 physical copies are hand-numbered and hand-signed. Those are almost gone. There's a couple left. So if you want to grab one, do that. 
Uh, if you want it digitally, stroll over to Bandcamp. And thank you to everyone who did stroll over to Bandcamp on Friday um, when they were waiving their fees. Thank you. Very humbling, uh, very, very encouraging to, to see, you know, your inbox light up, you know, every couple minutes and find out that people are hearing this thing that you worked on for, for a really long time. So it means a lot to me, and I just want to say thank you. The other thing I should say before we get into it, um, so today is my birthday, and I don't normally make a, I think my wife would disagree, but I, I don't normally make a big deal out of birthdays. This one, as I mentioned, is kind of momentous in that, like, I really don't have any excuses anymore. I'm not a little kid. Like, I should have been getting my shit together because now that I'm here, it's a little bleak. But the whole world's a little bleak, a lot bleak. So maybe I uh, was right to fuck off a lot. I don't know. I had planned some stuff for my birthday. Uh, I was going to do a 40th birthday concert at Roulette. There's a 95% chance that is not happening. It, it may happen down the, uh, down the road in the fall when things, you know, get back to something that resembles normal. I was supposed to do a, a music residency at, at, uh, at Pioneer in Brooklyn. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so, so all that is to say is that, you know, I wanted to, to honor the 40th birthday somehow. And, and today's show is that. So I, I put the call out for questions. A lot of questions came in, and um, some of them I think are pretty straightforward. Some I'm going to take the long route on, and uh, yeah, yeah, stretch out because we're going to talk about some shit today. I've never done solo podcasting before, but I like it. I've, I mean, I've always had fantasies as a kid of having like a late night uh, radio program, and there's literally no reason I can't. There's no reason I can't jump on the mic once a week, play records that I like, and, and, and talk shit. With no restrictions. Like, why don't I do that? I should absolutely be doing that. All right. Um, let's talk about these questions. So the first question I'm going to look at comes in from Luke. And uh, this question, like a couple others, I was happy to see because he's asking about something that means a lot to me, which is film. Luke says, hey, Jeremiah, thanks for the show. It's been great hearing from you again and happy birthday. Here's the question for your solo talk. In the recent conversation with Nate Woolley, you mentioned making a list of strong, quote-unquote, strong medicine films for a coworker. Would you be willing to share some or all of that list? I'd be curious to hear, your talk, hear you talk about some of your favorite films or directors. More broadly, how has your interest in film influenced your musical thinking? Thanks again. By the way, Cathedral is beautiful. Probably my favorite of yours yet. Best, Luke. Um... Honestly, Luke, I could spend the entire duration of this podcast talking about movies. I, I I love film. I always have. I don't always feel so comfortable talking about it just because, you know, similarly with a lot of, of music, you know, I'm not like super educated about it. So I'm very self-conscious in talking about it. Uh, but I would say that in the last few, I don't know, five years maybe, just in terms of taking in art and stimulus uh I've, I've definitely been much more excited by film than than anything else and i think part of that is just a matter of when you learn how to enjoy something and this could be anything travel cooking um playing sports once you kind of like establish the rhythm of how you relate to it and this is for me anyway 
I want to take in as much as possible. Um, I was I, I thought like a lot of people that this quarantine, like, you know, the, the part of me that was looking for silver lining was like, cool, I have stacks of DVDs and Blu-rays that I have to get to. I've got movies that I've tried to understand for years, and I'm just going to spend this entire uh, time inside just devouring film. And, you know, similar to the way that I thought I would uh, say, oh, you know, I've got all this music I want to do. I'm just going to, you know execute produce execute produce like you know the reality is this is such an unusual time that that it's been not so easy for me to focus on film but to answer your question uh that conversation with nate first of all was recorded almost a year ago and we drank a lot of whiskey so i don't i i do remember i made a list for a co-worker and when i looked at the list you know she said hey you know you love movies like uh, I'm hanging out with this new guy. You know, we're getting to know each other. Um, why don't you make a list of your favorite movies? We'll, we'll watch, we're going to watch some movies together. And I wrote this list of films that I just love. And then I looked at it and I was like, this is like the worst list to give to two people embarking on a new romantic relationship. Absolutely. Because I wrote down like 20 or 30 films and it didn't take more than like even just a cursory glance to realize that the recurring themes in all these films are ambition, greed, and male aggression. So, yeah, I'll share some of those films because these are the films that I love, the films that I come back to time and time again. You know, I when I when I um, for me watching movies is. A specific process and people look at me like I'm crazy when I mentioned that I watched a movie five times or six times but if I love a film right away if it does something to me I want to watch it again and I want to watch it again and again and I'll watch it maybe you know a part at a time if a film confuses me film I don't respond to it but like I, I, I know that there's you know an amount of work that went into it that it's a serious film that people talk about like I, I'll keep trying so some of the films on that list, some of the movies I would say, my favorite movies of all time. Uh, first off, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre by John Huston. I've probably seen that movie 75 times, maybe 100. I watch it um, usually once a month. And that, yeah, that is like, you know, these ideas of like greed and ambition, uh, you know, distilled to just like an hour and a half of like, per you know, everything about the film is perfect. Uh, it's funny. The, the writing... Is just razor sharp. You know, there's there's this thing, and I don't know how to talk about it. You know, maybe this podcast will just be me answering Luke's question, talking about film. There's this thing I fucking hate in contemporary film and television. And the, the most egregious example I can think of would be like 30 Rock or um, that uh, Mindy Kaling show, the, the Mindy show, whatever the fuck it's called. The, the way those shows are edited... The lines and the jokes are just flying by so aggressively that if you're not like like sometimes my wife will be watching that stuff and I'll just hear it. I'm, I'm not watching it. It's just this like sound that's happening behind me. It sounds like mentally ill people yelling at each other. It is edited in a way that is meant, I believe, to appeal exclusively to infantilized fuck faces. Now, when I go when going back to the treasure of the Sierra Madre, the lines are just flying back and forth like razor sharp. 
but there's pauses and there's beats and there's there's nuance to the to the delivery and it's just like I mean, I get delirious watching it. Like every two or three minutes, I get like the same way when you eat like a bite of really rich food, where you kind of like, you know, your your like your eye eyelashes flutter a little bit. Like that's how I feel when I watch that movie. Another movie that um, that does that for me in a really big way is the Sweet Smell of Success. Again, everything about it, just not in, not even a, a, a eighth of an ounce of fat on it. Every every frame of film matters and is deeply rewarding. Um, Sunset Boulevard, again, same shit. More re- or more recent. Um, I, I'm going to talk later about Brisson because someone sent in a question to ask specifically about Brisson. In the last couple of years, thanks to my friend B who put me onto him, Brisson's become the main guy. Um, you know, I if I had to make a list of five movies that everyone should watch, like probably three of them would be Brisson films. Uh, in particular, A Man Escaped, and you know, again, I'll I'll talk about that later. Uh, what else was on the list? Uh, there will be blood. I mean, you know, male aggression, male greed. Uh, other, you know, except for Brisson, most of the filmmakers that um, that that are out there, I kind of had I've like two or three films of theirs that I really, really love. And then the rest, you know, I could kind of take or leave or in some cases completely leave. Uh, I think the first four major studio films by Coppola are, are incredible. You know, Apocalypse Now, required viewing for, for anyone that calls themselves uh, a global citizen. The the first two Godfathers of the Conversation, absolutely perfect films. Uh, Altman, you know, I really love The Long Goodbye. I love The Player. I love McCabe and Mrs. Miller. You know, those are the three main Altman films for me. Um, more recently, the Safdie brothers have been fucking blowing my mind. I think Uncut Gems is absolutely perfect. And again, talking about these themes, it's like, it's just, it's just pure uncut, uncut fucking cocaina of film, you know? Uncut Gems. And then the film they made previous to that, uh, Good Time. I mean, everything, all their short films are incredible. But yeah, the Safdie brothers are really, really, really doing it for me. Um, Taxi Driver, Wages of Fear. Jesus fucking Christ, have you guys seen Wages of Fear? I I dare you to put that on at night and and try to fall asleep afterwards. Um, Midnight Cowboy... I, I there's look we're, uh, I I think I think I think that answers the question. Yeah, the list I made was like not the list that like you know like I said a young couple should be checking out. But that's that's that. Uh, next question is from Mark. Uh, first of all, happy birthday. My question: Listening to, to your new recording, Systema Mundi Totius, I was trying to decide how much was composed versus improvised. The cinematic feel to it makes me think just about all the music was mapped out and planned pre-studio various effects coming later but those were also conf- but those also were conceived in preparation for the project please comment um so what what I'll say about the music itself for this record um i wanted to create a piece that was uh primarily about performance you know a lot of the music that i've a lot of my output has been about studio projects and recordings that can't really happen like I, I can't match the level of detail and intensity in performance that I would in those recordings and I pay a lot of attention and I put in a lot of work to make these recordings be as singular as possible 
And um, like a few other projects that I've done, I, I started with the intention of this being a vehicle for performance, for an ensemble. So the piece is written for four clarinets with uh, two percussionists. The original idea was that the four clarinetists would be sort of like a choir. And the exclusive material that we'd be working with were a set of, of alternate fingerings that produce pitches that are, are not so definite. Like if you were to put um, a tuner up to any one of these clarinets at any time, the little needle would kind of be like wavering between pitches, you know. And a piece that uh, really I drew a lot of inspiration from going into it was this piece called Timber by, by Michael Gordon. Um, and you, the thing about that piece and something that I was trying to achieve with this piece is this, this thing where like, if you just hit play at any point in the record, in the performance, you wouldn't be able to find clues as to if you were at the beginning of the piece, the middle of the piece, the end of the piece, it's just sort of this like hypnotic world that you enter into. And then the idea for the percussionists would be that they would be like uh, free improvisers. They kind of had a sense of when events were going to happen, and then they could use that to respond. Um, and we did a few, I think we did four concerts. Um, and I want to do more. But so to answer your question, when, when that, it came time to record the piece, you know, my original intention was, yeah, go into the studio, six instrumentalists, bang it out. And something about the music, you know, the, the source material was also inspired by, by the Red Book by Jung. I realized very quickly that this is hermetic music. This is music where I, as I said at the start of the show, I'm, I'm really trying to access something that is not conscious, that isn't that isn't at the front of my mind, but you know, in the back. And when I said it took me three years to record, that's not to say that like, okay, I just spent a week meticulously mixing, you know, this five second chunk of music. This isn't like some Fernie House shit. What I mean, and this happened with my last record also, Decay of the Angel, is had the idea, started making sketches, started coming up with ideas, and I start recording. And I listen back, and it's like, it's not working. or This is working, but that's not working. So I try and like chisel away at the piece a little bit. And a year will pass. Two years will pass. Three years will pass. And ultimately what ended up happening with both of them is I tried to chisel these I these recorded pieces over a long period of time and then one day I was like fuck it I can't do this anymore and I literally banged the whole thing out in like a week or two and you know I guess you could say that's a process it's not a process that I want to continue with it is excruciating so improvised versus composed I don't you know the only time I'm really thinking about music as a purely improvisational practice is if I if if I'm with a group of musicians, if it's like a first time, like we're getting to know each other. But even then, you know, it's like the line is is very blurry to me. You know, uh, every project I've ever done has really firm amounts of of both ways of working that could be defined as as improvisation or or composition. So I, I hope that answers the question. Uh, next question is by my buddy, my colleague, uh, a musician here in New York who I have the utmost respect for, John McCowan. John wrote in today, he asks, how has the work of Lester Young informed your music? Hope you're hanging in, man. John, Lester Young. 
Hold on. Lester Young is the greatest saxophonist and clarinetist that I, I think I've ever heard. And I've thought about this a lot because I, I, mean, I listen to Lester Young constantly. I was listening to Lester Young when I hit record on this thing. Um, I, I think if I had to start explaining what it is about Lester's Young, Lester Young's music that, that grabs me so deeply, I would say it starts kind of like a rainbow uh, or like a beach or like a mountain view where no explanation. You take one look at it and you're just like, Jesus Christ, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It's comforting. It's, it's just like it, it relaxes me when I hear it. And, you know, I'm a musician and I'm a listener. So naturally I'm curious and I try to like unfold and unpack and, and peel back things and kind of figure out more what's going on. And look, I, I'll never be able to say like what's going on with that music. I, was, I wasn't there. I, I think with jazz specifically, the biographical nature of, of the players and the instrumentalists and the composers is really meaningful. I can't stand when people talk that shit where they say, uh, you know, you got to separate the art from the artist. <laughs> no, you know, in fact, I think you might be doing the artist a disservice by doing so. You know, uh, my friend, good friend, Charlie has spoken on this at length and, you know, if you're hearing, if, if, if you dig something about a film, you know, that could be Roman Polanski or, or Woody Allen or whatever other fucking reprehensible scumbag. You know, if you're, if you're reading something, if you're listening to something, like part of what you're responding to is the entirety of that person's, who they are, their work, their output, it's distilled into what to them is a perfect representation of feeling and idea. So to me, the idea of separating the art from the artist is horseshit. Unless it's like Phil Spector, you know? Like, yeah, he lost his fucking mind and shot someone. So, you know, it's not like he was like shooting people the whole time. You know, that, 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 that's different. Um, so, you know, the more I, I, I began to check out Lester, and I found these interviews with him that uh, were recorded, you know, kind of towards the end of his life. And he's, he's broken and beaten and he's drunk and he's, it's really hard to listen to him. This is a guy who, you know, played and executed at the absolute highest level. And so, like, I, I listen to, I hear a lot of pain in that music. I hear a lot of pain in that music. And, and then I hear the guy talk, and it's like, yeah, that was real. That wasn't me imagining it. That was, you know, that was what was happening. And you can hear his music sort of uh, deteriorate along the way. You can hear him playing licks that, you know, he played. 15 years earlier when he was much more spry and sober and you can hear you know it's just so part of it is like a sick fascination but it's ultimately to me just really comforting really just like i get irritable when people you know talk about soul music like or, or in the way that they would talk about soul food like i but there's there's nothing that comforts me like the music of of lester young it's just genuinely like you know a, a, a a warm blanket and a comforting meal. Uh, but more specifically, I would say I, the idea of licks. Lester Young made me feel like he was okay to come up with licks and use these licks. And, you know, in the tradition of jazz, like, licks is a thing. You know, people have their licks, and they work them in and out of solos, you know, all the time. And I always thought, like, I'm not a jazz musician. 
I can't, I can't approach music like a jazz musician. I've always felt like I have to make that distinction clear, you know? Like, I'd be embarrassed if someone like Lester Young heard that, oh, there's this jazz clarinetist, Jeremiah, you should go check him out. And he showed up, and I was doing, you know, whatever the fuck it is that I do. But through Lester, I, I, I found a way in to be able to engage with that music, engage with those traditions in a way that felt honest and, and has been helpful for me musically. So I, how's that? All right. All right, this next question I like a lot, uh, and, and, and you'll see why. This is from Oliver. Hi, and happy birthday. I'm a 16-year-old clarinet player, and I'm considering pursuing, pursuing a career in music. I've spent a lot of time thinking about why clarinet and other reeds have become so uncommon in modern music compared to the saxophone, considering that the clarinet was very popular in old swing music, and if it's worth it to spend this much practice time on when I could be spending more of that on something like piano or guitar. I read somewhere that the reason that the clarinet was... Uh, that the reason was that the clarinet was too finicky for bebop and therefore got dropped by cats in favor of the more quote-unquote easily played saxophone sorry if this is a bit long and specific but anyways that's all from me thanks uh oliver i appreciate you writing it in um i think first of all i'd have to question what we're defining as popular music you know popular music from what i can tell today it largely isn't about acoustic instruments at all. It's about auto-tuned singers and, and Instagram influencers. And, you know, music just certainly doesn't seem to be the primary consideration. But if you're talking about music that's still based around instrumentalists, uh, whether that includes vocalists and, and lyrics and ideas, um, I, I think there's actually plenty of room for the clarinet. I just heard this recording the other day that... Um, that Hal Wilner produced, uh, I think it might be the last project of his. It's a it's a tribute record to Mark Bolin and T Rex. And I heard this. There's, you can listen to it now. It's online. Um, Nick Cave, one of the great 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 musicians of the 20th century, if you ask me, does a version of Cosmic Dancer, the second song from Electric Warrior, which one of the great records of all time. Towards the end of the song, you hear the great Doug Weaselman come in and, and really, really lift the music to a special place with clarinet. And I think if you're—I I would describe that as popular music. I think the clarinet is the perfect instrument to accentuate a lot of people's ideas who are singers and songwriters. And I think, um, you know, I would say, you know, it sounds like your question is looking for thing, you know, practical advice, like— Double, triple, quadruple, like you should be playing many horns. The clarinet, you know, yeah, it's fallen out of favor. It's an annoying instrument, straight up. If if a clarinet is to cut through a group, like you pretty much limit yourself to the highest register of the instrument to be able to cut through, and it's annoying. The clarinet, when it could play with one or two instruments, on the other hand has all these possibilities and you have this instrument that sounds like the human voice and it's a really responsive instrument and you can waver the notes and 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 just really like if you put your work in you can really really make this thing talk and that's the the, the beauty of it but you know if, if you're talking about like a career in music as an instrumentalist be the guy that can show up and not only do whatever people's idea is, but exceed their expectations. 
So if you show up with a clarinet, a sax, uh, a flute, a bass clarinet, and, you know, have this arsenal, you know, look at Colin Stetson. Talk about a success story. That guy is like, you know, killing it. And he plays, if you, if you look at his, his trajectory, look at his discography, he has done tons of uh, work on other people's records where he's playing he put uh, this might be maybe i'm wrong i heard this rumor about him that when he was playing with the arcade fire they were like oh you play all these these saxes and clarinets and shit can uh, for this one song can you play the french horn and the story is he was scared to lose the gig so he was like yeah i'll, I'll play the french horn and he literally went and taught himself how to play this like you know weird brass instrument where you put your fist in the bell now, this is a guy who's really committed to the gig, obviously. So I, I think, yeah, like if, if you really want to be an instrumentalist that gets hired on a lot of stuff, like the smart thing to do is be able to, to play a lot of different horns. And honestly, if the clarinet is your main horn, you're setting yourself up for success in that way because it is a finicky instrument. It is a difficult instrument, and it's much easier to go from spending a lot of time on the clarinet to going over and picking up the sax and doing something cool than it is the other way around. Uh, people will listen to a clarinetist and know whether or not they've been practicing. So I hope that helps Oliver. All right. Uh, next question is from another buddy of mine. Her name is Jessica Pavone. Uh, and she has a question also about film. So I'm already on board. This, and I should say, you know, something that Jessica and I have, have connected on a lot in the last year is our utter obsession with a little film called The Irishman by Martin Scorsese. And I texted this thing. We were texting like a few weeks ago, and I said something about like, I figured it out, figured out what it is about The Irishman that I love so much. So Jessica writes, uh, hey, going to start with an easy one. You never told me why you were so obsessed with The Irishman. You told me you figured it out, but you never followed up. Here's what I figured out. It's a couple things. One in particular, but like honestly, I'm not a huge Scorsese guy. Um, I I have a few that I love and have watched over and over and over. Taxi Driver, Mean Streets, Goodfellas, um, most recently The Irishman. Uh, those are the main ones to me. And I went to go see The Irishman in the theater. I hate going to the movie theater. I fucking, I can't stand being around other people, snacking, and, and uh, you know, it's just like, I, it, it makes my skin crawl. I'd much rather watch stuff at home and, and just have like the peace of my house while I'm watching. But I, I somehow knew, I was like, okay, no, this will be a safe bet. I'm going to go see The Irishman in the theater. It's only going to be in the theater for... I think like two weeks or three weeks and tickets were hard to get. So I know that it'll be a full theater, but it'll be a theater of people who really want to be there and, and participate with this film. And I was right. There wasn't a person I went on. The only ticket I could get was a Sunday at like 11 AM at IFC on uh, on sixth Avenue. And there was not one person in that audience who wasn't just absolutely psyched to be there. It was like being at a show where, you know, the band that you love who hasn't played your town in like 10 years is there. So that's clue number one. It's like, what that feeds into for me is that we were, everyone in that theater, we were watching our guys, the guys that we love. You, you can't watch a movie without appreciating 
the context in my mind i mean you can you can watch you know like what do people watch they watch the hangover or some fucking bullshit like that like yeah you can you know if you're a brain dead fucking retard like you can watch that shit all day long and it context doesn't mean anything it's literally you know just like modular you know brain rot but you know i mean i've literally watched i've probably spent like a year of my life watching Robert De Niro on screen, you know, same for Pacino's, you know, and it felt like the, I felt like Scorsese made that film knowing that he was speaking to us, the people who I like he, uh, you have to acknowledge the relationship you have with your, your viewers, your listeners. you know. So from the get go, it just felt like we were there to like really not just appreciate this like three hour long event, but to appreciate this like this lifelong relationship with these people and these films and these, you know. Um, but what I was texting you about, Jessica, the thing that like I realized, so I left the theater that day and I te- actually, you were the first person I texted you right out. I was like outside of the theater being like, holy shit, you got to go see this. It's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. The last hour of that film, I, 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 something was like happening to me while I was watching it. And then when the film came out, you know, like a month or two later on, on Netflix, I watched it three times in one week. I was on a flight to LA. I watched it there on the way there. On the, on the way back, I watched it again. And then two days later, I watched it again. And the last hour of that film, except for the scene where they're at the wedding of Ray Romano's daughter, there's no music. The whole film was building up um, in, in a way where you 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 know like the second that that Frank Sheeran begins to have a relationship with both uh, Russell Buffalino and Jimmy Hoffa that you you know that he's going to have to choose at some point, and that coupled with enjoying these guys at this sort of like uh, like third act of their lives, there's already this like sense for me. This is what I felt this like sense of like mortality that's hanging over the film. And the last hour of the film, there's no music. And the film gets really quiet. Like, yeah, okay, look, I was irritated by certain aspects of the film. You know, they did all that like CGI to have them, you know, and I didn't think they were completely successful. It was a lot of people complained about that, you know, whatever. I was able to look past it. But yeah, that was that was annoying. And you know the part the movie where the part of the movie where he beats up the shop owner for for fucking with his daughter it's like funny and there's lots of the film is actually hilarious but that last hour the specter of death is just looming so heavily over the film the the silence around it you know when when Frank Sheeran calls Jimmy Hoffa from the payphone and Jimmy Hoffa is sitting out on the lake uh you you just know that it's not whatever it's going to happen is not going to be good and in particular the scene for me where like i just felt completely devastated was the morning where frank has to to shoot jimmy and he's eating a bowl of cereal with russell buffalo you know joe pesci's character uh and the way the sun is coming in through the window and you can see the the, sh- the reflection of the blinds and the silence in the room and like you can hear the the milk you know coming off the cornflakes and joe pesci's bowl like it, i just felt fucking gutted by it i think scorsese was really 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 reflecting on mortality in a way that is like real 
he's 80 years old and and he he got the message across i thought i thought it was fucking spectacular to the point i would say it's in my my top five scorsese yeah i would say mean streets taxi driver goodfellas irishman and then you know what the wolf of wall street because scorsese a lot of people forget this but he's he's a director for hire he does films that aren't like the vision of an auteur, you know? And I thought The Wolf of Wall Street was fucking spectacular. I thought The Departed was dog shit. All right, uh, next question. All right, this question is from Callum. Hi, Jeremiah. Hope you're well. Thanks for the opportunity to ask you about your life and work. I've been an avid listener since 2014 when I visited NYC for three months from New Zealand. I arrived to study and immerse myself in the straight-ahead jazz world, but quickly found it stifling. Your podcast helped me push in the direction of the downtown scene when I needed it most. And many of my experiences seeking out guests on your show are formative to my musical and artistic thinking. Thank you. Thank you, Callum. That does mean a lot to me. I hope you know that. My question is, I understand that your wife works as an architect and in other aspects of visual design. How has your work and interest in your respective disciplines influenced each other? Do you find inspiration in, vis- in visual and physical structure? Is your wife influenced by musical structure or ideas discussed by your guests on the show? If so, is this a conscious study and conversation? Stay safe and keep up the great work. Kia Ora from Auckland. I don't know what that means, Kia Ora. Uh, yeah, my wife. <clears throat> She's an architect. More broadly, she's involved with a lot of uh, holistic sort of um, spiritual activity. She's a very active participant in, in Buddhism, uh, specifically through the, the school of Shambhala. She does a lot of feng shui. That's kind of uh, a lot of her, her main focus these days. But yeah, she is a licensed architect. She also has been really active in Ikebana, in Kado, like a sacred placement of plants and and and, uh, flower arrangement to answer your question i don't think she would say she's taken much influence uh she's a pretty headstrong person if you want to know the truth and i again even like you know i'm like not even in the room with her but speaking for her feels a little like i already feel like i'm a you know one foot in the doghouse kind of thing yeah, she. Uh, no, I don't think she, you know. I I think I think she appreciates, in the same way that I appreciate a commitment to hard work, and I think, in the way that I'm very critical and skeptical of people who I don't think are putting in the hard work. She's you know architects are famously that way, especially for people who aren't licensed to call themselves architects. Got to know that if you're not licensed, you're not an architect. She's an architect. She put in the fucking hours. She paid the dues. That is something we see eye to eye on a thousand percent. You know, we have very little patience for people that that are putting out bullshit. And, you know, let me hit a side note, and maybe I'll come back to it. But this band cap thing on Friday, whoo, doggy, doggy, doggy. We got, we got to fix some shit in this experimental music scene in New York. I saw... <sighs> I'll I'll get back to this, but just because you can do something doesn't mean you have to do it. 
My utter distaste for the dilettantes in and around the music scene in New York is it very much mirrors her distaste for that in her own fields. I've been influenced, yes, I have been influenced by her um, and her work and, and her, her perspective on, on, on visual um, and, and well, less visual, more about space. And, you know, I think like a lot of couples, a lot of families, like our best discussions happen around the dinner table. And yeah, we've had plenty of discussions about inserting space into what you do, um, making sure that whatever's on the page, whatever's on the wall, whatever's in the sound, that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's intentional and that you understand the intent. That's, yeah, I would say that's it. Um, the feng shui aspect of what she does has influenced me most of all in that the idea of intention is right off the bat, perhaps the most important thing. Make every move count. Uh, be present. Yeah, that's that's where. And I think so. I take back kind of what I said. She, we've had a lot of conversations about improvisation, and I think she really has an appreciation for the work of of impro- improvisers. Um, you know, maybe more so than like the recorded output, than the sound, than the actual music. But the fact that she she definitely understands what an improviser is doing and has respect for it. And it's always funny to me when you know about a year ago now we had a dinner. It was she and Evan Parker and I, the three of us. I will tell you, it was one of the best nights of my life. We got blasted. I made a huge meal. You know, I did two different roasted fish. There were sausages. There were, you know, all kinds of vegetables and bottles of like really cool wines that I picked out for the night. And watching her and Evan sort of drunk argue was, I, I can't tell you, it was the fucking funniest thing ever. Um, so she, yeah, when she's been around people like Evan, people like Joe Morris, like the real deal, the real like dyed in the wool, like serious improvisers, she knows that these guys are fucking wizards you dig um so yeah yeah i hope that does that help does that that answer i think it did uh all right next question this is from dan if you're working on new material whether composing or just practicing slash improvising how do you get a sense of on if it fits best as solo or better material for a band or ensemble uh i don't ever really generate ideas uh, that I then figure out where they're going to go. Generally, you know, I I will start out with like, okay, I'm working on a piece of solo music. I'm working on a piece of ensemble music. I'm working on a piece of electronic music. And then start answering the questions, Uh, the questions of of what the material is, of what the the sound is every time. I've, I've never, I can't think of a time really. I'm sure it's happened, I guess, but like I can't really think of a time where I started working on something and then realized it would work better um, somewhere else. Uh, You know, I was in this roulette concert that I mentioned probably won't be happening. Um, I was going to close the concert out with a piece for like a large-ish ensemble. And I've been, you know, working on how am I going to make this a fulfilling experience for the musicians and the audience? How am I going to make this a fulfilling experience for me? How am I going to find some growth in writing for an ensemble? So I, th- I think about things more like that. I don't think about them as like, you know, a piece of clay that will be molded dependent upon the, the situation. I think about the situation, then start with the clay. Um, 
uh, yeah, okay, so this next one is, is kind of long, um, but it does go back to where uh, to, to who I, something I was talking about earlier, which is the movies of Robert Bresson. This question comes from Cole. This is a good one. Thanks so much for doing the podcast. I'd just like to reiterate that listening in has been really great at helping me feel connected to the larger world. That's the greatest compliment you can give me, Cole. Thank you. Also, the 5049 has been pretty important to me for a long time. So altogether, thank you for doing what you do. And a preemptive happy birthday to you. In a, re- in a recent episode, I believe the most recent Nate Woolley episode, you mentioned potentially making a list of 20 of your favorite films for a coworker. What would some of those films be? I've heard you mention Brisson. Do you have a favorite Brisson film or films? Further, I'm curious about how you feel viewing films has informed your relationship with music on any level, from specific decisions in a compositional or production context, through more general ideas about music, interaction, form, process, etc., to larger scale questions about why you play music, what you think music is for, etc., Lately, I've been thinking a lot about patience, creative resiliency, self-confidence, not only in one's musical abilities, but in one's demonstrated ability to learn and grow. Based on past experiences. Yeah. Uh, This year, I've also been pushing myself to finish pieces of music. I'm finding that both in pushing through the last 20% of a project, in editing and polishing and assessing when it's right to let the project be complete, That's a tough one, Cole. Uh, And then the week or so after it's complete, I go through many stages of joyous confidence and crushing self-doubt. I'm sorry, dude. Not only in the work itself, but really in all of life's decisions I've made, which have brought me up to this point. Jesus. So I'm curious about the emotional, psychological, personal, potentially existential experiences, experiences you've gone through as you complete a project of your own. What they've meant to you and how much you believe these experiences, not about musical knowledge, but about personal knowledge, have influenced the decisions you make after the whole project cycle is over. On a lighter note, what have you bought on Bandcamp Daily? Any records you're particularly excited to spend some time with? Sincerely, Cole. Cole, this is this could be a whole podcast, uh, the stuff that you put forward here. So let's let's... Let's break this open. Let's start with Brisson. Um, I am a recent devotee of Brisson. My good friend B. Quan Lim, she did the artwork for Decay of the Angel. She's a brilliant, brilliant painter and visual artist in San Francisco. Everything she does is, is amazing. Uh, we had coffee together like two, maybe two years ago, not even, and we were just talking about film, and she was like... I know you love Brisson, right? And I was, and I literally, I don't know what you're talking about. She was like, "This is the filmmaker for you." She's like, she told me about the, which ones that she likes, and she was like, "You have got to like make this a priority to to get into these films." And the first one I watched is A Man Escaped, and I just I can't think of another time in my life where while watching a film, it was like love at first sight. I, I mean. To be perfectly honest with you, I, I've never experienced love at first sight in my life. I, I didn't know it was a thing until I watched this movie. And it was just this moment of like everything about the way this movie is working and presenting the ideas. It not only affirms everything I felt for a long time, but is showing me all these 
possibilities of, of what I can do, of what can be done, of, 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 of how you can make a piece of art, whether it's music or film. And like, that's, that's what love at first sight is, right? You feel completely understood and inspired to continue to understand. And that was my, um, that that was how I felt watching A Man Escaped for the first time. And, you know, it's one of very few movies where the second I was done watching it, I started it over and started started it again. So my favorite Brisson is A Man Escaped. Uh, shortly thereafter, it's like a, you have to picture a triangle. You have two films that sit side by side that I have an equal love for, uh, which are L'Argent and Mouchette. Uh, in terms of Bresson's output, they exist pretty far from each other in that L'Argent, uh, I'm pretty sure it was his last film. It was one of only two color films he ever did. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure what I just said is true. Uh, Mouchette is definitely a sleeper. A lot of people don't don't show that movie the reverence that it deserves. I think it's Bresson at his fucking best. It's heartbreaking. I think, uh, you know, this may or may not be a hot take, but if you watch that movie Precious that came out like 10 years ago, you realize that is like literally the tourist version, the tourist version of Mouchette. You dig? Fucking heartbreaking. Uh, one thing about Bresson... And I've never had this experience before. You know, he only made 13 films. So, and none of them are very long. So fe feasibly, you should be able to like inhale his entire output. Uh, like I said the, earlier, I, when I watch films, I need to watch them numerous times to really kind of get in there. And there's still a couple of his movies that I haven't watched. I own all of them. I have physical copies of them and I have a subscription to the Criterion channel. So I've got numerous opportunities to watch them. I am quite intentionally saving these knowing that I have something to look forward to but yeah my favorite Brisson are A Man Escaped L'Argent and Mouchette after that um, I would say there's another tie between Diary of a Country Priest and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation uh, Oh Hazard Balthazar okay uh, how what is it about Brisson and his work and his output that that I think ultimately I look at and I see possibility for music it's patience it is extracting the absolute maximum out of the absolute minimum some of those scenes in a man escaped. I mean, you know, he was, Brisson was famous for focusing on hands while he was filming. And he was also famous for not using professional actors. He didn't want actors to get in the way of the film, which was most important. So making every move count. Honoring silence. Honoring uh, the space around what, you know, you, you, you watch a movie. Again, you, you know, watch some brain-dead pile of dog shit like, um, I don't know, fucking... Uh, a Wes Anderson movie. You, you want to talk about comparisons. You know, Wes Anderson is not a fucking cockroach next to Brisson. Okay? Watch some pile of dog shit like, um, you know, the Budapest Hotel, whatever it was. That is idiotic actors hamming it up in a, with so much affect that, you know, it makes you want to puke for a guy who, you know, literally couldn't make his, couldn't make a, fucking direct his way out of a paper bag. Brisson, he'll film hands. He'll film people, you know, who've never acted in their life and you're watching and you're like, this is the greatest movie I've ever seen. So that there's like a sleight of hand there. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like he's he's getting he is 
deriving this attention and emotion from the viewer that in a way that's like totally unparalleled. And, you know, I think he was sort of like famously kind of like dismissive of a lot of stuff around him. Well, he should be because when you, you know, um, a, a, a musician who has impacted me similarly would be Wadada Leo Smith. You know, when I, in particular, his solo music, I see a lot of parallels uh, between what um, Brisson was doing and what Leo does with music. I'd be curious to know if Leo is a is a Brisson fan. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, those two things go to the next part of your question um, about patience and resiliency. I mean, I would say patience would be two of the first words I would think of in describing either of those guys. You're asking about finishing projects. You know, I, I, c- I couldn't identify with you more. Like I said at the start of the show, it took me three years to make an hour-long fucking record where I'm literally the only cat playing. How do you know when it's done? Um, For me, the final stage in making a record is a deeply frustrating process of gathering the materials from various hard drives, session files that are labeled, you know, in a way that they would I would never be able to find them. Uh, mixes that were made on the fly because, you know, I was, you know, they were somehow informing the creative process as I was making the music. Just being left with a pile of shit, honestly, which is enough to make me not want to complete the thing. But I think at some point, for me, there's something important about throwing my hands up in the air and just saying, I think I did it. I think I did all I could do. I don't even know what this thing is anymore. And and then, you know, maybe walking away from it for a minute uh, if you have the luxury and time to do so. I think you do, you know, more than ever, you know. I think we have, like, if if the last, you know, uh, seven weeks has taught me anything, it's like, you know, soak up the time to 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 really work, work on things. And, and as far as your question about uh, existential dread and, and bleakness, yes, every time. It's part of every... I I do believe there's something wrong with me. I do believe that creating music, creating work doesn't need to... to, to It it doesn't need to have that as an aspect of it. It's utterly helpless. Yeah, the completion of every project feels like a victory because in some way I feel like I beat death, but... Just I don't know, man. Wouldn't it be cool just to like? Are you Jewish, by the way? You must be. Uh, to just like make music, you know, and like enjoy the 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 process and the output. Yeah, um, I I don't have any reason to believe that that feeling of dread is and 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 anxiety is ever going to go away. On a lighter note, what have you bought on Bandcamp lately? Okay, I bought um, Nate Woolley's new solo record, fantastic. Evan, Evan Kang, who, till the day I die, I'll buy everything he ever puts out. He put out a new record. Uh, so did Susan Alcorn, both on, on Steve O'Malley's imprint. And I bought something else. Those are all great. Let me talk about this Bandcamp shit for a minute, all right? And I'm sorry if I, I, I'm going to sound like an asshole for a minute. But, guys, let's have some self-respect already, please. You know, this whole corona thing... A lot of, at least early on, we were all saying like, well, this is great. It'll highlight the disparity in 
in in poverty and wealth and we're gonna you know as a, as a country we're gonna recognize the need for some sort of like socialist redesign of how we live and yeah that is necessary probably not gonna happen but as musicians you know who who are completely underground let's use this opportunity to take those same lessons uh about responsibility into our own lives and stop releasing utter fucking dog shit Bandcamp has been very fucking cool during this this uh, uh, this period of lockdown. They've been doing um, one Friday a month where they get, they waive their fees, give all the dough to the artists. And this uh, past Friday, two days ago, felt like, and a lot of I think for a lot of, a lot of us, it felt like Christmas. People woke up in the morning and were just like shopping the shit out of Bandcamp. I think they did something like fourteen million dollars in sales, unbelievable. And a lot of people. A lot, myself included, a lot of people I know got substantial payouts from it. Substantial payouts. When I say substantial payouts, I'm talking like I'm paying my mortgage with that. I'm buying groceries. I'm paying down credit card debt. I'm not talking about like a run to the CD store or, you know, an extra six pack. I'm like, real money. But I saw this thing like I saw musicians like posting shit on Bandcamp uh, that day that was like rehearsal tapes and you know gigs that were recorded with with you know an iphone or a zoom or you know people you know my solo record that i made yesterday in quarantine and it's like i just can't relate to that level of utter arrogance look if i was told i've said i've used this example before if john coltrane and and um miles davis did a date a recording date, a duo record of free improvised music. And the only document of it was this like piss poor recording that someone made with like a, a pocket tape recorder. I w- wouldn't give a shit. Masters on that level will transcend any medium in which you hear them. But for the rest of us, like when Bandcamp offers that to people, it isn't a rush to just. I mean, I, I understand we all want to be heard. We all want to connect with people. We want to share our stuff. But, like, practice some restraint. Pretend, you know, it like it literally cheapens the entire process if all you're doing is just throwing little cups of dog shit at the listener. Stop doing that. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you have to. Going back to Cole's question, the, the 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 second one, failure is all but guaranteed in music and musical endeavors. Okay, but the difference between a great person and a fucking normie troll is the great person strives for excellence and then fails. Okay, I understand the impulse. I understand it's like, well, if you're going to result in failure anyway, why try? Somehow striving for excellence has become like out of fashion. I think in this, you know, it's like seen as like some normie, like cisgender, you know, patriarchal, you know, wrong minded way of thinking about things. But let's strive for excellence. I put my record out on uh, Friday on May 1st. I I announced that date two months ago. So that's in my defense. But I put out a record I worked on for three years. I'm not trying to say that I'm right and someone else is wrong, but guys, come the fuck on. 
I saw guys putting three records out in one day, and you look at it, and it's like, yeah, I recorded this in my living room um, last week. This is from a gig. And it's just like, don't fucking be that guy. Don't be that, like, strive for excellence. Vertical tension. You know what I'm saying? And then fail. You're gonna fail. But fail with the valor and swagger of a guy or a woman or a person who took their work seriously. Fail with dignity. Fail with integrity. All right, that's all I'm going to say about that. But but uh, yeah, to, to the other people that were doing, you know, the thing that I talked about, do fuck off. Uh, this question that I'm about to answer is going to get a little lengthy and I hope you guys will indulge me because this has nothing to do with music or film. This is from my buddy, Nick down in Philadelphia. So to set up Nick's question, um, I started making pizza at home in 2008. I, I, I get pretty nice in the kitchen. False modesty aside, if you were to come over to my house, to eat dinner with me, uh, you would probably have a pretty good meal. And I started making pizzas. And to me, pizzas have been like uh, like solo clarinet playing. Like, folk, like I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. And I'm going to experiment every step of the way. And I'm going to learn about myself through this process. That is what pizza making is. Let me go back to these idiots on Bandcamp for a second. Because let's look at this same comparison, pizza and music. Do yourself a favor. Drive out to Brooklyn and go visit... Dom DeMarco at Tafara. You will see a guy who has been striving for excellence for 60 years, doing the same thing over and over again through repetition, making perfect pieces of art every time. And people wait four hours at a time. Same goes for Lakali. Same goes for Badia down in, in Philly. Strive for excellence. So, yeah, my relationship to making pizzas has, uh, I, I, I see it as a direct parallel to solo playing and music making. And Nick, you know, I promised Nick that um, I was going to, I was generating a document that I was going to share with him about what I've learned about pizza making. And Nick wrote to me, not even a hi, Jeremiah, or yo, what's up? Just one, one, one little sentence. What is the best kept secret to home baked pie? I'm going to share with you right now, and if you don't want to hear about pizza making, fast forward probably like 10 minutes because I'm going to, uh, I'm going to open this up pretty wide for Nick's question. Um, all right, Nick, uh, just like with music, just like with home repair or fixing a car, first things first, you need to know what your tools are, how they work, and how you relate to them. And you really need to have a pretty clear understanding of what your de uh, desired outcome is going to be. So, you know, you and I have talked a lot about pizza. Uh, I know you probably more than a lot of people. You understand the differences in regional pizza styles in, in um, you know, and even probably what goes in behind to how they're made. So I would say start from the perspective of what am I aiming for with this pizza? Uh, me personally, my favorite style of pizza is New Haven style pizza, New Haven, Connecticut, particularly the pies that come out of Sally's. I think that's the best pizza in the country. Uh, and that's a very specific thing. You know, it's uh, they, a, a classic New Haven pie doesn't even have any mutts on it. It's tomato sauce and a sprinkle of, of Parmesan. 
the pies are really large and thin. They tend to have a lot of char on them. So ask yourself, what kind of ovens are they working with? If you think about like a classic uh, New York pie, those pies are being cooked in ovens that, you know, go to about six, 700 degrees. They are tending not to use the best ingredients, but again, through repetition, they know how to get a good pie. Think about a a Neapolitan pie. Those guys are working with ovens um, and typically with access to far superior flour than the average person in the United States has at the grocery store. And they're they're cooking pizzas uh, in ovens that exceed temperatures of 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So those pies are literally cooking for 90 seconds. So that all that is to say, one, visualize what kind of pie you're trying to make. Two, when you visualize that pie, ask yourself, well, what is, what is it about that pie? What is it about the pie from Sally's? What is it about the pie from Una Pizzeria Napolitana that I'm, I'm aiming for? Um, and, and really then from then, from there, look at your own oven, look at your own tools, look at, you know, what you can and cannot achieve, uh, realistically. So that would be the first place. I would say that's the conceptual starting point. The next thing I would say is look at your oven and your pizza stone. Me personally, I prefer a cast iron pizza stone. Um, they're easier to clean. They conduct heat very evenly. Uh, they, I, you, you know how they're going to work. The typical conventional oven in, in a residential property is going to go to 550 degrees Fahrenheit. And with any style of pie, you want to start from the place of getting your oven as hot as possible. So I would say start, no matter what you're trying to do, whether it's you know a, a New York style pie or, or you know a Neapolitan, preheat your oven for like, if you can, two hours. Get the stone screaming hot. Having said that, again, thinking about what kind of pie you want to make, position the rack in your oven accordingly and use the different, you know, the broiler, you know, when the way a typical oven works is by confection. The heat go is distributed evenly throughout the oven. The broiler you are cooking with direct heat. So I will often, no matter what kind of pie I'm making, I'll start the pie in the incredibly hot oven and the last minute or two I'll crank on the broiler to get like a nice char on the top of the pie. But again, think about where you how, how much of that you're going to rely on and then position your rack based on what that idea is going to be. So like right now I made a pie this morning. I actually sent you a picture of it. I had the rack uh like 3 racks down. And I turned the broiler on for like 3 minutes. So the pie wasn't as close to the direct heat as as it could be, but you know, because I was using a thicker dough, it it it, it cooked more evenly. Um the next thing I would talk about is the dough itself. And the first thing I would say is I think most home cooks where they, they fail most commonly in pizza making is with the dough and the crust. You know, when, when you're making like all of Italian cooking, you want to start from the perspective of using the best ingredients possible and not fucking with them as much as possible. So if you have good cheese, you have good tomatoes, you got good basil, you got all that, then you're already you've already won fifty percent of the battle. And where I see a lot of home cooks, you know, just not really take a pizza to the next level is with the dough and with the crust. So the first thing I would say uh, is until you really get your dough and crust game together, I'll never understand why people do this. Don't 
leave huge amounts of crust around the perimeter of the pizza. If that's going to be like the least delicious part of your pie, why not just like spread the sauce and the cheese as far out as possible? You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Like just in terms of enjoying the pie. Once you kind of begin to figure out, you know, how to get your dough to the best place it is, then leave those big, you know, thick perimeters where you have this like nice charred crunch at the end. Um, so I'll say that. In terms of the dough itself, a lot of people um, are really insistent that you use bread flour. And I understand the concept, the concept being that there's more protein in bread flour and that's going to be more conducive to building gluten, which will result in like a chewy bite, you know, with like more pockets of air. I haven't had a lot of luck with that. I think AP flour works fine. I will say that I think dough gets better with age. So uh, the recipe that I use to make pizza dough relies heavily on a lot of um, active yeast, like a lot. Like if you saw how much yeast I put in, you'd be like, what the fuck, you know, Uh, with a little bit of sugar to activate it. And then, you know, within 30 minutes, you've got dough you can work with within 30 minutes. But I will batch out dough and for the week I'll have like, you know, as the by the, the end of the week when I'm down to my last batch of dough, that's the best pie. I think dough ages well up to one week. Sauce. Uh, the first thing I'll say about sauce is never, ever, ever add sugar to sauce. That is the most goyish, disgusting thing I can think of. Uh, you know, I prefer, I, I generally prefer a raw sauce. And what that will include is really nice canned tomatoes, olive oil, salt, chili flake, oregano, if you're feeling crazy. Um, you are running your oven as hot as it'll go. And within the eight minutes to 12 minutes that you keep your pie in the oven, that sauce will get cooked through all the way. But I like bright, pulpy bits of tomato. You know, there's, I'm, I'm fine with, uh, cooking the sauce beforehand and, you know, reducing the flavor down and using lots of ingredients. That's cool. For the most part though, I prefer a raw sauce and, Beyond the flavor and getting like those bright, bright tomato bites, a big part of what I like about the raw sauce is uh, I don't, and this is like generally within food, I don't like getting the same bite of something twice. I I I prefer dishes like I'm not I'm not a dog I'm not a cat I don't want a can of food that is just this gelatinous mess where like every single bite is you know this like disgusting glob. I like. I like variation in texture, in flavor, in in what's going into the bite. And I think when you use a raw sauce, you'll get some bites where you're getting just like, you know, the liquid sauce. Some bites you're getting big chunks of tomato. And and for me, that is uh, that's that's what I prefer to do. Cheese. Again, going back to the start of this conversation about what kind of pie are you trying to make? Now, people love New York style pies. I love them. They're great. Um, if you're going for that kind of pie, you want to use a low-moisture mozzarella. And I would say, honestly, go to go to the grocery store and get like a block of polio low-moisture mo- low mozzarella. It will do the job most efficiently for that. I would say the best thing to do is to get it as cold as possible and do not dre- put it on the pizza until you're ready to put it in the oven. Keeping that cheese cold is going to keep the grease from just spilling out and turning into a big orange mess. Um, So there's that. 
If you want to go that that Neapolitan route, uh, I would say that's when you want to go into using fresh mutts, you know, buffalo mutts. But be judicious, you know. If you're just scorching the fuck out of a pie, I don't personally see the point in using a really, really nice, delicate cheese. I would say experiment with where you put the cheese. Um, sometimes, man, put put the sauce on top of the cheese. Try that. You know, it's up. It, what do you want? You know, again, visualize what you want. I'm probably going to spend more time talking about pizza than anything else. Um, yeah, that, that's all I'll say about cheese. I always do fresh grated uh, Parmigiano Reggiano. I do it at the end as the pie comes out. Uh, I feel like that's where it'll be the most impactful. The next thing I'll say is about toppings. Again, know what know how the toppings work. You know, if you're adding black olives. Uh, if you're adding onions or peppers, fresh sliced garlic, anchovies, like you want, you want those to be on the pie from the moment it hits the oven. But if you're adding fresh basil, do not, I mean, this is me, but like, why would you put fresh basil on a pizza and then throw it into a screeching hot oven? I do it at the end. I want to taste the basil. Um, if you're adding meatballs, if you're adding bacon, if you're adding sausage, I would say cook those things off first. Uh, yeah, you know, just know, know, know what it is that you're working with. Um, and then, you know, I would say baking the pizza, guys, I'm sorry if this is like not interesting to you at all, but baking the pizza, yeah, the traditional way to get the pizza from the pizza peel into the oven is to sprinkle the peel with cornmeal and build the pie on top of that and have it just roll off the cornmeal onto the, onto the stone. I've never had a lot of luck with that. What I do is I use parchment paper. So on my pizza peel, I put a, a piece of parchment paper. I build the pie on the parchment paper, starting from when I roll the dough out. It all happens on top of parchment paper. Slide it into the oven, onto the pizza stone, and within two minutes, you can just yank the parchment paper out very easily. You can reuse it. You can probably make four or five pies with it. Uh, I've had great success with that. Um, lastly, I would say if you have a cooling rack, like a wire cooling rack, when you take the pie out of the oven, put it directly onto that and not the pizza peel or a cutting board. Uh, you just, you know, you don't want it to get too moist, you know, you want, you want it to, to retain whatever crispiness it has. Uh, so that's my pizza school in a nutshell. I, I, thank you guys for bearing with me. I told you 10 minutes. I think that was about 10 minutes. Uh, all right. Next question. Or actually, uh, the next two questions kind of involve uh, a similar theme, which is looking back. Uh, this first one is from Nathan. Hi, Jeremiah. If you could meet your past self right before you began your journey in New York as a professional musician, what pieces of advice, maybe even warnings, would you give him? Thanks for all the work you do. Nathan, P.S. Sistema Mundi Totius is fucking awesome. I agree. Uh, buy the new record, please. Nathan, it's weird when I think back to my past self i it, it's someone i don't recognize it, i i i don't like to think about that person i get kind of sad when i think about uh who that person was i i feel like that person could have used a lot of help um i think i've said that on here before but when i yeah when i think about myself as a young person i i, I get sad so i don't really think about that a lot uh if I could go back, though, and give myself advice, I think the first bit of advice I'd give myself would be to be patient. To be patient and be understanding. Try to be understanding whenever possible. And just don't be such a hothead. 
you know, I, I think very early on, and rightfully so, I was frustrated by certain aspects of the way New York and more specifically the music scene in New York work. And, you know, rightfully so, I got like really hot-headed about certain people and certain certain operations. And, but, you know, keep your cool. Don't show your hand all the time, you know? Like, it's just, it's not, it's generally not helpful to just lash out, like, super aggressively at every single thing you think that is wrong. I'd give myself that advice, and I would give myself the advice of, um, kind of like with pizza. Like, really figure out what you want to do, and then spend time with the people that are, you know, I, it took me a while to do that. I was, you know, I was really shy when I moved to New York. I was really sort of confused about a lot of things. And I was probably here for like five years before uh, I began like focusing closely on the things I really wanted to work on and the people with whom I wanted to work on them. And, you know, that's that's largely because I'm a slow learner. I, I, I honestly, and I'm going to, this is going to lead into this next question. I definitely think that had circumstances been a little bit differently growing up, I would have absolutely been diagnosed with some sort of learning disability. Um, that leads to this next question, which is from an old pal, Jesse. Yo, buddy, I'm glad you're staying positive and productive during this Michigas. It's chaos here in homeschool, Homeschoolville, but time is, a, is an illusion for us all. It absolutely is. With that, I'm enjoying the return of your podcast. Since I'm a teacher of young musicians and a father of two young idiots, my question is what advice would the almost 40-year-old musician Jeremiah give the younger Jeremiah who's just starting to learn his instruments? Looking forward to a future legendary hang. Yours in hameness, Jess. All right, so first things first, this is my pal Jesse Krakow. That sign-off, yours in hameness, is a reference to he and I's shared obsession with... Uh, an actor called Corey Haim. And what I will say, as much as I appreciate all the questions that have come in, I do wish at least one question would have come in about elite Hollywood pedophile rings because the amount of time that I have put in at this point researching these things, I'd like to be able to talk about some of this shit. Um, so, yeah, so this question is kind of similar to the last one. But this is more specific about a young kid playing an instrument. I would, I would, I had a hard time learning growing up. I had a really hard time with it. And I didn't know. I was always a really bad student. I always got really bad grades. I couldn't pay attention. I couldn't figure out why any of it mattered. And the moment that changed was when I went to summer camp. I went to summer camp for four years, I think, in New Milford, Connecticut at a liberal arts summer camp that stressed Montessori learning. Camp was called Bucks Rock. I met Charlie Looker there. We discussed that recently. I met a lot of other really tremendous people there. Uh, and once Montessori learning became part of my life, I actually saw that like I wasn't an idiot, that I wasn't stupid, that I could um, learn by doing, that I had what, that I knew how, that I could learn. I always had a really hard time learning. The only thing I never had a hard time learning was reading. But everything else, math, history, music, everything, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't process it. And being in that environment, um, learning by doing is what made me feel like that, like I was somehow 
semi-functional. So that's that. Yeah, that'd be the first thing. Um, figuring out, you know, if you're working with young kids on how to learn music, like figure out how they need to learn. Figure out what it is that works for them. What kind of like sparks something and, and gets them going and gets them wanting to, you know, to learn and and and, and do something. Uh, what I would say to myself if I could first establish that, you know, that relationship of excitement about learning, I would say focus on fundamentals of the instrument every day long tones scales sight reading it's boring it's tedious it's not thrilling but this is the thing that's most likely to get you to the place of having thrilling experiences with music i've always described myself as post-literate uh you know, and that's like semi self deprecating, it's semi self aggrandizing, but I, I do wish that my, my knowledge of things was less specific to myself and uh, perhaps a bit more general. So that would be my advice to the young self is to really f- focus on the fundamentals, get your shit together, be able to interact with any musician you, you, you sit down with. And Jesse, we are most definitely due for a long overdue hang and we are going to do it this fucking goddamn corona shit has really made it clear to me that i need to spend more time with friends all right next question this question is from patrick patrick asks hey jeremiah longtime listener both of the podcast and your music my question i'm a big fan of your interview style if you can call it that. As someone who reads slash listens to many interviews with artists who inspire me, I'm used to a lot of repetition from conversation to conversation. Somehow the 5049, with somehow with 5049, you managed to always get unique and interesting information from your guests. I imagine that a lot of this has to do with the fact that you are a musical peer and member of the same community as your guests, but I'm wondering if you could tell us if there are any interviewers, books of interviews, publications, or anything at all that have inspired you in this regard. Happy birthday, man. Patrick. P.S. I know many have asked, but it sure would be historic to have you interview Zorn. All right, a couple things. Uh, Number one, thank you. Number two, yeah, you're going to hear repetition in interviews where the person conducting the interview is on is not on equal footing with the person they're interviewing. So my approach, and, I, and to be very clear and very honest, I don't think I'm good at this shit. I, I listened back to some episodes recently, and I couldn't make it through 30 seconds. I just was absolute cringe fest. Um but yeah, like I, I think if I've learned anything, it's you want to figure out how to, at one time, at, at, on one hand, disarm the person you're talking to, but also uh, make them feel really comfortable. And if yeah, if you have that peer relationship, you can kind of guide the conversation with you know bits of shorthand, bits of shared experience and knowledge that you know, we'll, we'll just kind of open up those avenues. And I did feel, I did learn pretty quickly and sort of accept that I was okay with these conversations being a bit raggedy, being a bit like unprofessional, being, you know, in service of having those moments come out where, where I feel like, well, I couldn't have gotten those moments if I was just like reading questions off a piece of paper. 
Um, so yeah, you, you, you read that correctly. That is how that works. That's how that'll always work. I don't think that, you know, there's very few people that I think can get a great interview who don't also have that kind of, um, familiarity with the person they're talking to. Uh, interviewers that I think are good. I don't, I don't, I, I, honestly, I'd rather punch myself in the face than listen to interviews most of the time. I mean, Mark Marin is good. Um, I think he's kind of fallen off a bit and yeah, certainly he was an inspiration, um, at the start of the podcast. I think he's probably the person I could listen to, uh, without wanting to fucking kill myself. Most of the time, yeah, I, I can't stand, you know, people asking other people like, uh, you know, so what is it that you do? You know, how'd you get started? Like it's, it's just, yeah, it's never that compelling to me. Um, but having said that, uh, I, 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 just, I think anything where it's something's being generated by someone within the community. So music books, um, the Toro, there's a Toro Takamitsu book that is astounding. It's called Confronting Silence. I recommend that as highly as I can recommend anything. Same goes for the Morton, Feld, uh, blah, 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 Morton Feldman book. Give my regards to 8th Street. Uh, Zorn has published a series of books called Arcana that, whew, there you want to talk about highs and lows. There are some incredible articles, you know, articles penned by musicians um, explaining their work, explaining their ideas, sitting side by side, unreadable piles of dog shit people musicians who are like you read their articles and it's amazing because you see who they are you know just absolute fucking jive artists uh and it's yeah it's incredible so i definitely recommend the arcana series um having zorn on the show i'm gonna it's gonna take me a while i interviewed zorn for the show back in 2014 the interview lasted like two minutes uh, he thought it would be a good idea and then very quickly decided that it wasn't. So I'm going to search around my room tonight and see if I can find the hard drive on which those two minutes exist. And if I can find it, it'll be at the end of the show. All right, next question is from Chad. Jeremiah, thanks again for doing all these. They're great. I love them. I'm just curious, has there ever been an episode of the podcast that you could not air, either for, either because the material wasn't interesting or something else? Thanks again. Keep up the good work, Chad. Uh, there have been three episodes of the 5049 podcast that I have not been able to use. Uh, the first is that that Zorn one that I mentioned. Uh, it lasted two minutes. Second one was a conversation with Sam Amadon. Uh, I, he, at the time, he was living in L.A. I was out in L.A., and I drove out to his place to interview him. And his child was young at the time, like two, and was running around, uh, making a lot of noise, causing a lot of distraction. And my recorder fucked up and just, you know, it was after about 25 minutes, we looked at each other and just said, look, this isn't going to happen. Fortunately, uh, a few years later, we were able to do a proper interview and it's definitely one of my favorite episodes of the whole podcast. Um, and then the third one, I won't say who it was, but, uh, we, I went to them in Brooklyn this was a person who plays a brass instrument. And for about 25 minutes, they just fucking put me on. They were just talking shit. They were not taking the whole thing seriously at all. This person plays trombone. Uh, they live in Williamsburg. And it was, they, they are really into multimedia projects. Uh, it was just unusable and it was very uncomfortable. And they, yeah, that was. That, that was the one time where I was just like, I just wasted my time talking to this person. 
All right, uh, we got a few more questions. I'm going to turn this fan on because uh, I, I hope uh, the noise isn't too distracting. I've got a question here from Lewis. Jeremiah, my question for today, Sunday, would be beyond art, film, and music, or maybe commenting on the future of. Question. We know there will be a repercussive Grand Depression coming up. Society will not be the same by the end of this year. How can we shape this new world to be more inclusive and compassionate world and not an opportunistic take advantage of the weak world, which is the default if we don't intervene? Loaded question, but art in action is the A, is in the A somewhere, I think. What is your take on this new world we are entering? Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, I, I think right now we're in the calm before the storm. Today was a really nice day. It was like 72 degrees out in New York, clear blue sky. I took my dogs for a walk, and, you know, I was wearing a mask and keeping my distance from people, and, you know, that was a drag. But for the most part, you know, since the start of quarantine, my general disposition has, has evened out, and I'm able to have nice days, and, you know, most of them are pretty nice. But, yeah, the reality is this is a period of time. I think I, th- I think this month is when shit is going to start getting weird and start getting real. Because now the initial burst of goodwill I think people are showing towards one another will start rolling back. You know, people hitting pots and pans at 7 o'clock I think will start to kind of get a little bit quieter. And the reality of not being able to pay rent um, and then people who are owed rent not being able to collect that rent is it's about to start setting in. And yeah, I, I, I honestly think this month, May 2020, we're going to see some pretty dramatic shifts just in the way we interact with each other. Um, <sighs> yes, we are approaching a, a, a Grand Depression. And I, I I, I definitely don't have an answer on how to make the world uh, a more inclusive and compassionate place. I, I do think that as individuals and as a society, we could maybe question how we define things like compassion and inclusivity. I think things have kind of gotten away from us a little bit. I'm talking only about how we interact as people. I do think ideas of inclusion and compassion have become a little distorted in the last few years. They kind of more closely resemble condescension and some kind of like talking down to, like an imperialist mindset that claims to know what's best for everybody. I, th- I, I think and hope that's going to kind of roll back a little bit. I think a lot of really prominent people on the left have sort of redefined what inclusion and enlightened thinking is and it's utterly distorted so i think i, th- I think and if if we play our cards right we can kind of get back to a place where it's actually genuine and real and not some maniacal tool to to manipulate things so that just means like in in practice actually just living these ideas and truths but i don't know art in action i I would say going back to that thing that i was like shrekking on you know an hour ago 
Strive for excellence. There is truth in beauty. I'm dumb. I'm not the person to uh, to, to be answering any of these these kinds of questions about how to make sense of a really confusing new world. But I will say that from our, if we're talking about art making, if we're talking about music making, we got to stop celebrating that, that thing I was talking about of just lowest common denominator. Like let's really, really put some shit at stake here. Lewis, I don't know if that answers uh, your question, but that's where my mind went with it. I've got a couple more questions here, and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, this one is similarly kind of hard for me to answer because I'm not, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not equipped for this kind of thing. This is from Greg. Hi, Jeremiah. How does the state of the world influence your music? In overtly political music such as punk rock, there is obviously a strong connection between the two. Regardless of the genre, I find myself far more affected by music coming from a dark places and times and sadness than music that isn't. I can certainly certainly relate to that. I was curious how your music has been shaped by sociopolitical circumstances in America over the past few years. And although it's probably too soon to say, in the present moment with COVID-19 and quarantine piled on. Thanks for answering, Greg. Um, yeah. Right, right, right off the bat, I, I hear you on being sort of seduced and entranced by by things that come from a dark place. I, I think it sounds like Greg. It sounds like you and I are coming from a similar place where, <clears throat> yeah, we we sort of need to be sold like a bill of authenticity that hinges upon like some brutal existence, and that's cool. Um. I have there's plenty of music that I love that has nothing to do with that, you know. I like a lot of really joyous, beautiful music, but I, yeah, for the most part, I need a lot of a lot a lot of salt and a lot of sour to wash the sweet down. And I, I think for my own musical practice, you know, a lot of the music I, I work on tends to to start from that place. But it's certainly my hope that anyone who really engages with it, you know, they might be drawn in or, or caught off guard by the general tone of it. You know, it can be abrasive. It can be loud. It can be dissonant. But my, my sincere hope is that very quickly or not quickly, but that at some point they will engage with, to me, what's most important, which is the hard work that within these, you know, these, these clusters of, of what seems like cacophony of, of dissonant music of, of, dark brooding music that within that they're going to hear you know that there's a lot of thought and a lot of again most importantly hard work that went into it in terms of socio-political circumstances honestly the more i pay attention uh which quite frequently is way too much uh the less likely the less possible it is for me to to really work on on creative music creative anything you know I have uh, a history of of spinning out. I have a history of, you know, emotional roller coasters and that are frequently triggered by current events. And, you know, like what's what's going on this last week, what the DNC, you know, 
fucked Bernie even after they already fucked him. Yeah, that's enough. If, if I let my mind, I. <laughs> it's difficult, you know. Like the intellectual side of me, which is you know, the non-prominent side, is completely compelled by modern sociopolitical current affairs. But the creative side of me knows that that where my brain goes with that is completely detrimental to making work. So what do I do with that? I don't know. It's these things are at odds and I've not reconciled them. I haven't figured out how to reconcile them. The two, they, they sort of, uh, they don't get along so well. You know, I mean, I, I get why people like Bob Marley. I get why people like Pete Seeger. I get it. But that music's never done anything for me. So, yeah, I, I haven't figured out how to cross that divide yet. I mean, I think, you know, just like I said, you know, earlier in the show about things being baked in. I know that that dissonance uh, between reality. Man, I I could start my own podcast, a, a separate podcast of of you know, the radical ideas I have about how things are actually going. I would probably maintain two or three of you as listeners. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, I don't know, Greg, does that help? Was that, was, did I answer your question? I don't think I did, but I've got one more and I think I intentionally saved this one for last because it felt happy to me to read this question. I don't know why. This is from Aaron. And Aaron says, hi, Jeremiah. I just want to say happy birthday and let you know that your podcast is a pleasure and a great resource. Question for your podcast. What achievement, musical or otherwise, are you most proud of? All the best in these crazy times. Keep well, Aaron. What am I most proud of? Well, the first thing I would say is the response to that question that's music-based came to me way too easily. So it makes me question why I would be proud of something that immediately jumps out to me. But the thing that jumps out to me just straight away is a record I made almost 10 years ago called Fire Sign. And what is it about that record? It's a few things. One is it was the first record I made where I really felt like the music was 100% me. What I was able to get onto tape was it's there was this weird you know when you make music you make recorded music you kind of know and then the older you get you definitely know that there's a limited amount of time for you to be happy about this music very quickly you're going to listen back to it hear everything that's wrong with it and feel completely dismissive of it and be embarrassed that anyone would ever listen to it at least for me and uh, my buddy cole who i was talking to uh, a few minutes ago and that record, when I made Fire Sign, a couple things were happening. One was I'd made a couple records where there had been support. That is to say, there was a different label on each one. Things happened pretty naturally. There was like a, a nice flow happening. And then it just sort of like stopped. And something inside of me knew that I should just like not try to, to unstop it. 
but just sort of like kick back, lay back and, you know, and I started making music, um, on my own in my apartment, uh, just, just for the sake of making it. I wasn't thinking in terms of what will this, how will this music be released? You know, what's, what's going to, how's it going to be packaged? Who's going to put it out? Just, just making music. And I came across, uh, I, I came upon a method of working, which was I had all these like hard drives of, of recorded music, uh, either stuff that I had recorded for arch- archival purposes, like other people's concerts, friends of mine, or, you know, outtakes from studio dates of my own stuff. And I began making these like sort of uh, like music concrete pieces. And I just gave all, myself all the time in the world to work on them. And then the final, I made a piece that uh, I had kind of written a sketch for a year or two earlier that is the piece of music that I am more proud of and I feel more sort of like closeness to than any piece I've ever done, uh, which is a piece called Burned Across the Sky. Piece was written in dedication to my stepfather. Actually, yesterday, May 2nd, was the 24th anniversary of him uh passing away and it's the piece of music that i am most proud of most yes there's problems with it the recording yes there's there's things i would change absolutely but when i listen to that piece of music i hear something honest i hear something uh executed i I can still feel when I listen to it, the feeling that I felt at the time of making it where it, it's an excitement that, that wow, this, this thing is, is happening. It's, it's coming out. It's better than I, I could have imagined it would be. Like it, just, every, every, it was just hitting everything I needed it to hit. And every time I listen to that piece of music, which is not often, you know, every two years or something, like I get, I get that rush again. And, it's, yeah, it's the piece of music I'm most proud of. It's definitely, I'm going to, that's what I'll do is I'll, I'm going to wrap this up in a second and I will put that piece of music. It's like 15 minutes long. I will put that on and let it, you know, play out for, for the rest of this podcast. The other thing about that record was there's another piece on there that I'm as proud of called, uh, touched with fire. And that was a piece that I did for cello and drums, Chris Hoffman and Brian chase. And, I knew I wanted to make a piece with these guys. We'd been sort of like jamming a little bit and I knew there was something there. And basically what happened was I, I had three pieces done. I had a piece for two trumpets, a piece for bass, burned across the sky. I sent the stuff to Zorn and he was like, this is incredible. He is, I still like, I get like choked off thinking about it, but he said, this has to be on Zodic. And I wrote back, I said, the record needs one more piece. And he said, do one more piece and then we've got the record. So I wanted to do a piece with Brian and Chris. I came up with an idea. I wrote a bunch of sketches of just like little micro moments of music. One minute, two minute kind of thing. And we spent a day in the recording studio. A day meaning four hours or something. And we just recorded these little moments. And, you know, it was one of those things where like I looked, I was looking, I kept looking at Chris and Brian and, and it just kept hitting me. Like these guys really support me. These guys are here, like that. their guard is down. They just like, they believe in me. And they want the music to just to just happen, and and that piece of music fucking rules. Like I'm so 
I'm so psyched on that piece of music to this day. And then that went on to become my band Pale Horse. I made two records with those guys after that. I want to make more. Um, so Fire Sign, 2011, Sodic Records, is the record I'm most proud of. Um, it, most proud of. It, that record holds a really special place in my heart. Uh, other stuff I'm proud of, I'm really proud of my friendships. You know, I think I'm surrounded by pretty exceptional people. All my relationships, you know? Um, if I really am being honest with myself and I'm pushing back like the devil, like that that sort of tells me how terrible I am all the time, I'm proud of the fact, you know, I got a great wife. I, I own my apartment in lower Manhattan. I never would have thought that would have happened. You know, like I, I beat the fucking shit out of myself all the time. But the actuality is like, I've done all right. Uh, I'm proud of, I'm proud of a lot of the work I've done in restaurants. That's not something I really ever talk about on here. But, you know, I've worked in restaurants since I was 13. And one thing that COVID has really sort of like made clear for me is like, I'm a restaurant dog in many ways more than a musician, you know? The people that I've been checking in with a lot uh, and sort of like missing throughout all this are, are my friends that I work with in restaurants and the, the day-to-day stuff that we have. You know, my little brother, Hoel. I always wondered it would be like, what it would be like to have a little brother. I'm the youngest brother of uh, three kids, and I always wondered what it would be like to have a younger brother. And I got this guy I work with, Hoel. In the moment, the second I met this dude, he's like 27, I looked at him and I was like, dude, I've always wondered what it would be like to have a little brother, and now I know. And, the, and this is my dog, my ride or die. You get it? Uh, I'm proud of the relationships I have with these people and the, the stuff that we do on a regular basis. I, I didn't ever think I would be excited to get back to restaurant work, but when this shit's over, like I look forward to going out and like executing service in a way that, you know, has, has this as like reflection in hindsight. Uh, I, I would not have thought that that would be my answer to a question, um, to this kind of question, like three months ago, but I think that's it. All right, guys. Uh, that's it. That's the podcast. I think I answered all the questions. I may have missed one or two, but I hope this was okay. I hope that you guys dug it. I've never, you know, I just sat on the mic for, what is this, an hour and 45 minutes. How did I do? Was it all right? Uh, like I said, I'm going to play us out to uh, Burned Across the Sky. It's a piece from my 2011 record, Fire Sign. And thanks a lot, guys. Thank you for, for the birthday wishes. Thank you for everyone who picked up the record this last week. Thank you for, for your support, for, for letting me know that this thing means something to you. Uh, I love you all very much. And here it is. Here's Burned Across the Sky.